Hello and welcome to Asia Inside Out, where we take you beyond the latest headlines for an inside look into Asian and global affairs. This is Anubhav Gupta of the Asia Society Policy Institute, and today's episode is about climate diplomacy under the next U.S. president. We're recording this episode as the COVID-19 global pandemic continues to wreak havoc in communities and economies across the world. The coronavirus has naturally dominated both individual thought and national politics in the month of March, and is likely to do so in the weeks and months ahead. But as April gets going, we sit nearly seven months from the US presidential election. As we record this, former Vice President Joe Biden and Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont remain in the race to become the next Democratic nominee to challenge President Donald J. Trump for the presidency. One issue that the eventual Democratic nominee and the sitting president will disagree on is climate change. The two parties diverge not just on what to do about the problem, but about the seriousness of it. This means that this U.S. presidential election will have an undeniable impact on U.S. climate policy and the future of global climate action. We know what the Trump administration's climate policies are, but how will a potential Democratic president tackle the climate challenge? Given the stakes, the Asia Society Policy Institute has published a new issue paper on climate diplomacy under the next U.S. president, with insights for Asia and the world, with recommendations on what to prioritize in the climate policy sphere and how to juggle the climate fight among a number of democratic priorities, and now in the face of a global pandemic. For this episode, we have the co-authors of the paper, my colleague at the Asia Society Policy Institute, Tom Woodruff, and climate expert, Brendan Guy. Tom is the senior advisor on multilateral affairs to the president of the Asia Society Policy Institute, and he's currently leading a project on the future of US-China climate cooperation. He has previously worked in the UN climate negotiations, including as a lead advisor to Pacific Island Nation. Brendan is speaking in his own personal capacity today, but he is the manager of international policy at the Natural Resources Defense Council. He works on strengthening the climate policies of major economies, and he has taught international climate policy at Oxford University and American University. Gentlemen, welcome and uh, thank you for joining the podcast. Uh, how are you both doing uh, under what are very strange and uh, troubling circumstances? Uh, well, thanks a lot, Annabelle. It's great to um, it's great to be here. But yes, um, I think uh, if anything, we're seeing uh, the challenges play out before our very eyes of some of the biggest um, global challenges that we have before us. Another of which, of course, is climate change. Thanks so much for, for having us on the show. Really great to be here. I uh, wish it was under better circumstances, but I'm uh, very glad to be speaking about both one of the most urgent pressing challenges, uh, coronavirus, but also in the context of one of our also urgent, but definitely a longer, longer term uh, challenges in terms of climate change. So glad to be on the show. Uh, you know, let's set the stage a little bit uh, before jumping into the paper. Um, Tom, would you mind explaining just how important this election is globally when it comes to climate change. After these last three and a half years uh, under the Trump administration, where does the US fit in within the global climate fight? And especially in the implementation of the Paris Agreement, which President Trump has started the withdrawal process from. Um, thanks, Annabelle. Um, I mean, to take a step back, the United States is the world's um, second largest emitter of, of greenhouse gas emissions. So obviously anything the United States does or does not do uh, in the fight against climate change uh, has a massive flow on effect, massive global ramifications, uh, including obviously on the behaviour of, of other countries. 
in the last three or so years under President Trump, you've seen a president who's come to office who's who's promised, in fact, to tear up the Paris Agreement, and as you say, has now begun that formal process of withdrawing the United States from it. Um, that process will actually conclude on November 4th, the day after the, the presidential election. Um, and that, of course, is therefore means that this election is heavily watched by the rest of the world, coming as it also does at a critical moment for the global uh, fight against climate change. Insofar as the Paris Agreement also includes uh, a provision whereby every five years, uh, countries around the world assess the levels of their ambition. Um, particularly to mitigate climate change. Um, and of course, that five-year process, that first five-year process, um, is effectively happening uh, as we speak and is likely, in fact, to potentially flow into next year. Um, so this election, perhaps more than any, has severe ramifications um, for how other countries will approach that. Sitting here in the U.S., the election was obviously front and centre of a lot of people's minds a month ago. Now, obviously, what's taken place um, at the center of most conversations is the coronavirus. So tell me a little bit about what are the immediate consequences for the global climate change, the global climate change fight? You know, has this already had some impact on the, on the global negotiations? It's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, I think really there's been two big impacts uh, if you look at this from a, from a climate perspective. First and, and most immediately, you've seen a, a massive drop uh, in emissions globally. Um, and that's obviously through a halt in the economic activity that has happened uh, in response to this virus. People just simply aren't traveling. Factories uh, obviously aren't operating. The second though, um, and this is particularly relevant, I think, in the context of which um, our paper is written. The second, of course, is that we've now started to see a whole range of diplomatic meetings related to climate change start to be delayed and, and rescheduled. Now, COP26, which is the annual UN climate negotiations uh, meeting, which uh, is due to take place uh, in Glasgow in Scotland in November this year, is possibly uh, to be delayed. And indeed, by the time this podcast comes out, we might indeed have the first indication uh, of that being uh, likely to be the case. A couple of things I would just say about that. Um, the first is, uh, if COP26 is to be delayed, um, that is not altogether necessarily a bad thing uh, in the context of obviously the world um, fighting the coronavirus as we should be. The first, is that obviously, as I mentioned before, it's the moment under the Paris Agreement's five-year action mechanism where countries were meant to be um, bringing forward their new commitments to increase ambition. And with the public health emergency that's unfolding now, and obviously with the economic emergency that's quickly following it, um, that means that for a lot of countries, their planning processes in terms of getting to the point where they can actually increase their targets has inevitably been pushed back. Uh, and therefore, uh, that means that actually a delayed COP26 um, might actually fall at a more timely moment for that. Um, the second is actually that as part of that recovery, there's a massive opportunity for us to address much more systematically how we address climate change as part of our uh, everyday society and part of our everyday economy, um, including in the stimulus measures that, that a lot of countries are obviously um, rolling out. And the third, frankly, is just the sequencing point that I've been alluding to. And most relevantly in terms of our paper, um, of course, that means that there's a potential that COP26 would fall after a new president has potentially 
um, not just been elected, but also taken office. Um, and therefore the policies that that president could potentially bring to the table um, have the potential to be hugely consequential in terms of the behaviour of other countries. It also potentially means that China's own five-year planning process, um, uh, which was originally due to conclude towards the end of this year, might also be pushed out and sequenced well with that timing. Um, and there's particular examples that we talk about in the paper, such as Vice President Biden's own plans to host a, a World Leaders Summit early on in his presidency, um, which would fit very well with that and could be a significant diplomatic opportunity as well. Great. Well, thanks for that global context. Brendan, let's jump to the Democratic side of things in the election. One of the most striking parts of the race so far of the primaries has been the extent to which climate change has been a high priority across the really diverse and wide slate of candidates, and in a way that we haven't seen in years prior. You know, why is that? And what does it mean for climate policy and the election? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think what we're seeing really is for the first time in American political history, it's now possible to say that climate change is a top voting priority for at least one of the two major political parties. And so if we dig into why uh, the shift is occurring, I think there's a number of reasons, but one of the primary ones is really that climate change has moved from some future uh, far off problem to some crisis that is right on the doorstep. And it may not be as immediately on the doorstep as uh, everything that we're dealing with with COVID-19, uh, but it is certainly much more personable, much more tangible, much more relatable for everyday Americans. And that ranges from everything we've been seeing from the infernos in California to massive flooding in the middle of America. People are really making that personal connection to climate change, but also to issues that they really care about, like housing affordability, health problems, inequality uh, on down the line. And because people, and especially young people, really see climate change affecting them personally, they're raising the profile of the issue and they're forcing the presidential candidates to better understand and respond to those demands. And so responding to that, candidates uh, as politicians are then putting out uh, appropriate plans and corresponding plans, and they're also speaking to the issue more regularly as they're on the campaign trail. So that creates uh, much more news traffic and news cycle around climate change and then creates a, po a real positive feedback loop as voters uh, then also think and talk more about climate change, seeing it in the news. And because of all those shifts, I think for the first time, we're really seeing that there's a real climate vote, both in the primary, but I think to a degree also in the general election as well too, as politicians now really see that they can win or lose votes on the issue. Great, and your paper I know deals more with the international plans of what a democratic president could do but it's worth talking also a little bit about their domestic plans. So are there shared elements or pillars in the different democratic presidential climate agendas? And two, do those agendas and those policies that are being proposed comport with or align with you know, what the rest of the world wants to see the U.S. do? Yeah, absolutely. I think the first real thing to note on this is how far the baseline has shifted over the last several years. Um, all candidates in the democratic field have put forward some of the most forward-leaning, comprehensive climate uh, plans in presidential election history, far beyond anything ever included in Obama's platforms and even Clinton's in 2016. The second thing to note is that there's a lot more common ground amongst the democratic candidates than we or even the media uh, often like to think. 
uh, on international climate policy specifically. That includes uh, things such as embracing the need for net zero emissions um, as soon as possible and by 2050 at the latest. Also embracing the framework of a Green New Deal that includes linking climate change priorities with other pressing economic and social priorities. It also includes things like renegotiating trade deals to prioritize climate change and uh, cleaning up the US's overseas uh, investments to make them greener and more renewable. So there's obviously a lot of differences on the substance uh, in terms of uh, particular policy issues and uh, various candidates' theories of change in terms of how those are actually gonna get delivered. But I think on the whole, we're really seeing greater unity on the need to address climate change in a more urgent and holistic way than is usually acknowledged. Generally speaking, whenever we have climate debates, climate policy debates in the US, the big elephant in the room is often China and what China is doing. Um, because if you're talking about a global coordinated fight against climate change, China is certainly part of the picture. And so Tom, I'll turn to you with the next question. Given the current terrible state of US-China relations, um, especially now in the context of coronavirus, how do you see this relationship affecting any plans that a democratic president has for global climate cooperation? Uh, well, I think it's a huge factor. Um, and I think it's a huge factor because there's no more consequential bilateral relationship uh, in the global fight against climate change than that between the United States and China as the world's two largest emitters. In 2014 and 2015, the um, work that the United States and China did together uh, in terms of the first joint announcement, for example, on climate change was, as we write in the paper, really the watershed moment that helped ensure and galvanise that we were actually able to secure the Paris Agreement. That said, for the reasons that you mentioned and others, we also, I think, need to acknowledge that we're in a very different context uh, to that which we found ourselves in uh, at the time. Putting aside uh, COVID-19 and, of course, all the difficulties that that's presented uh, in the bilateral relationship as well, if you look at it just more generally as well, you've seen, for example, in recent years, a much more assertive uh, Chinese foreign policy. Frankly, I think it's also important to acknowledge that the United States' uh, sense of credibility and durability in terms of its uh, long-term climate change policy is also uh, weakened than that which it was, for example, four years ago. And that lends itself to potentially very different dynamics in terms of whether the two countries um, would be prepared to share um, the same stage and be prepared to undertake the same kinds of activities um, that obviously we saw four years ago. That said, there's also um, positive aspects as well. Um, for example, Vice President Biden knows President Xi incredibly well from the time that they were both vice presidents themselves. Um, they have an incredibly deep uh, personal relationship, which is important uh, when it comes to a lot of elements of diplomacy. The thing that I would say, and one of the areas that we actually touch on in the paper, is that I think one of the things that's important to keep in mind for a new administration in the US is to approach their engagement with China on climate change uh, in what we call a constructive um, but competitive sense, and not necessarily through a lens of economic or diplomatic combat. Um, and to give you a, an example of that, you know, Vice President Biden throughout um, the campaign, both in his written policies, but also in uh, the various interviews and indeed the, the debates that he's been a part of, he has spoken quite often uh, of the need to try and hold China to uh, higher standards in terms of the environmental credentials of projects under their Belt and Road Initiative. 
Now, it's one thing to try and diplomatically rally countries uh, to encourage China to change their policy, um, frankly, out of an approach of, of shaming them. Uh, it's another to try and um, have them change their behaviour through a policy of uh, trying to spur, for example, a race to the top. Um, so, for example, in that context, the fact that um, those BRI projects collectively represent um, around a billion dollars of potential um, uh, investment from the United States in renewable energy aspects is a huge opportunity um, that can that can achieve um, that. Um, so, for example, the US offering alternative finance to those projects would be one way, perhaps, that's a a useful frame of reference to think about approaching those kind of questions where there are perhaps tensions uh, in that climate aspect specifically. Great. And so the bilateral relationship obviously is going to be key in terms of getting climate cooperation going. But as you hinted, Tom, what China is doing domestically on climate is, is equally important to build trust and get U.S. policymakers to, to act. So, Brendan, I wanted to ask you, how you would characterize China's climate actions since the Paris Agreement was finalized. Has China lived up to its obligations? Is it playing the sort of leadership role that US policymakers often call for, given its um, emissions profile? Yeah, so China has demonstrated actually quite a, a strong commitment to the Paris Agreement, and the initial targets it put forward uh, were quite a significant step forward from its previous policy, and that included uh, the first ever commitment to peak its emissions. Um, so historically, we've really seen that China's economic growth has been very tied to uh, its coal power, but now we're actually seeing signs of that decoupling um, with really, really strong growth in some of the kind of non-fossil energy, uh, and especially on the renewables fronts in terms of leading the world in uh, solar energy and in wind deployment over the last few years running. And going back to coal, uh, the coal consumption in China is actually in the process of leveling off. It peaked around uh, seven years ago, and a lot of the coal plants uh, in China currently are not uh, entirely economic, and a lot of them are not even profitable, um, just sheerly due to the, the markets and the competitiveness of renewable energy and other sources of energy. So we're definitely seeing a shift there. Another sh uh, place where we're seeing a lot of uh, shift and movement is on the, the oil and electric vehicle side. China is strongly promoting electrification of vehicles, uh, which could uh, actually lead to an earlier peak in oil consumption over the next five years. I won't speculate too much as to the coronavirus uh, implications for, for China climate actions at this time. It's a very complex picture, especially against the, the backdrop of the prior economic slowdown. But I think as Tom has had alluded to before, all of this is really unfolding at a critical time and a critical, critical period for China and its climate policy as it's determining the targets to be included in its 14th five-year plan that will go from 2021 to 25, as it's thinking about revising its national contribution to the Paris Agreement, and as it's formulating a, a mid-century strategy to deeply decarbonize it, its economy. And all of these are expected to be published over the course of the next year or so. So I think this confluence of uh, both you know, significant crises, but as well as opportunities, really presents China with a chance to stimulate really high quality, cleaner growth that generates more and better jobs uh, in its domestic industries. Great. So now that we have a little bit of a state of play about what China's been doing, let's dig a little deeper into the specific policies and, and recommendations in your paper about what a democratic administration could do. Tom, you lay out in some detail not only how a democratic president plans to increase emissions reduction efforts in the U.S., but how they can do this to maximize the impact on other nations as well. 
What are some of the specific recommendations you make in that regard? Well, I mean, I think one of the things we can absolutely bet the house on, uh, besides the fact that a democratic president would return the United States to the Paris Agreement, uh, is that they would also increase ambition. In the long term, uh, we've seen every uh, candidate uh, running for the democratic nomination talk about achieving at least net zero emissions by 2050. Some, uh, like uh, Senator Sanders, for example, have spoken about the need to achieve complete decarbonisation by that date. In the short term, uh, looking, for example, at 2030, which is really the focus uh, in terms of that five-year moment that I mentioned under the Paris Agreement, um, we've had some candidates uh, put very specific numbers on the table in terms of what they would like to see. Um, Mike Bloomberg did, for example, Tom Steyer did as well. Um, and we've seen others take a, a, a broader approach in terms of in terms of the level of their ambition. But as I say, the one thing that we can absolutely be assured of is that a democratic president would increase uh, the US's ambition from the target that was set under the Obama administration. The important thing, though, I think, and what we talk about in the paper is, um, as you say, is how that can really be leveraged uh, internationally. One important um, point that we seek to highlight and which hasn't necessarily got a lot of attention um, just yet is actually purely just around the timing aspect of when a president would formally uh, increase the the United States' emissions reduction target. For example, during the campaign, there's been a lot of talk of returning the United States to Paris on day one. Uh, and one of the requirements uh, of the Paris Agreement is that any country that is part a party to it must also have um, what they call a nationally determined contribution, an NDC, which is effectively their emissions reduction target. Now, there are ways that the United States could, for example, submit a temporary or placeholder NDC. They could resubmit the 2025 target um, set by the Obama administration. Um, But one of the recommendations that we make quite clearly in the paper is that we do not think a new administration should rush to produce a new NDC and certainly not rush to produce it such that they um, would table that at the same time as they uh, seek to rejoin the Paris Agreement. Um, I say that because a few reasons. Uh, One is that any incoming administration will first of all want to get a very clear snapshot as to actually where the estate of the US emissions stands. The second is that uh, I think it's really important that that process is grounded in a strong domestic consultation process and obviously an internal government consultation process. Um, But the third is that it's actually a massive diplomatic opportunity to leverage greater ambition out of a number of other countries, particularly uh, a number of big emitters who we have seen so far throughout this ratchet process Um, perhaps be a little bit less uh, willing or less forward-leaning in the likelihood of them also similarly raising ambition. One of those countries which I think it's important to be engaging with throughout that process is is obviously China. Um, So one of the recommendations that we make in the paper, for example, is that the United States should really seek to leverage a number of key moments, uh, including that summit, that World Leaders Summit that I mentioned uh, Vice President Biden has been talking about They should leverage moments like that to really ensure that they are able to drive the behaviour of other countries to do more uh, in the same way that the United States will hopefully do more as well. The paper also suggests that um, one of the most consequential policies that a democratic president is likely to have is to embed climate policy 
into trade policy. Why is that and how exactly do they plan to do that? Yeah, so this is one of the issues we go into some depth in in the paper. Um, and just speaking more broadly, it's one of the major shifts we've seen, not only in the US, but I think really globally over the last several years is this increased attention on using trade as a critical lever to drive climate action and rather than the usual status quo of conducting trade policy at the expense of climate policy. Uh, so this has really uh, actually been broadly shared across, um, I think, all of the presidential candidates' uh, climate platforms of really using the heft of the U.S. as the world's largest economy and the power that it wields over trade negotiations and trade policy to really drive climate action um, in, in other countries and globally. So uh, just as a, a couple examples, Vice President Biden has said that he would seek to condition uh, future trade agreements on countries' commitments to meeting their enhanced Paris Agreement targets. So not only saying that they have to meet their current ones, but you have to make stronger ones and also be you know, making uh, moves to actually uh, implement those stronger targets. As a second example, Vice President Biden has also said, and I believe Senator Sanders and others have also said as well, that they would implement something akin to a court carbon border fee or a quota. And this would be on carbon intensive imports using some of the World Trade Organization rules um, that help to promote a, a level playing field for competition and really uh, seeking not to have uh, U.S. heavy polluting and heavy emitting industries uh, be outsourced to other countries. So I think the combination of a lot of these different tools and, le and levers in the trade realm is really going to see a completely um, reinvigorated approach uh, to looking at all the different levers to drive climate action, and I think is definitely going to be something at the very forefront of any new president's mind as they enter into office. So what I'm hearing is that a democratic administration is going to lead to a complete shift in approach to climate um, in terms of the kinds of tools that are being used, but also really a heightened ambition in terms of what scope to attack this problem. Um, but we've seen democratic presidents in the past uh, tried to tackle the climate challenge run into a lot of obstacles. You know, you have the Obama administration, which was unable to pass sweeping legislation on climate, uh, and then had to resort to executive action to get things done. So my question is, you know, if the next president is a democratic president, structurally and politically, what are the big questions and challenges for such an administration in realizing and implementing the kinds of recommendations that you both lay out? Well, that's, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, I think, um, Politically, like any administration, there are a whole range of priorities coming into office. Um, it's very clear already um, that the COVID-19 pandemic is going to have to be uh, top of mind for any new president and indeed the economic response to that. Um, and one of the things that we write um, quite up front in the paper is that obviously where climate sits in any president's hierarchy of priorities, um, is often very directly linked to um, how much they, in fact, will be able to achieve. Structurally, I think, though, there's a real opportunity, um, particularly with a new uh, democratic president, to actually structure their administration in such a way that climate change is embedded as an organising principle across the administration in a way that we haven't seen before, um, which perhaps puts it on a footing to be able to um, achieve many of the outcomes that we speak about um, uh, in a much better way. Um, so, for example, um, some obvious things, uh, perhaps uh, uh, whether that policy is driven centrally out of the White House in a way that we haven't really um, seen before. Um, there's obviously 
uh, the National Security Council, there's Council of Economic Advisors that coordinate interagency policymaking already. Um, and some of the ideas that aren't spoken about necessarily in the formally published plans of the presidential candidates, but which are definitely being discussed elsewhere, are the possibility of whether um, climate might fall into um, that kind of structure. Um, the other, for example, is also, of course, um, uh, the State Department. Um, at the moment, the, the team within the State Department that manages climate change, which attends the annual UN climate negotiations, which we've been speaking about, they tend to sit in a um, somewhat isolated uh, bureau. Uh, it's the Bureau of Oceans and uh, International Environmental and Scientific Affairs. Now, if you are to uh, truly see, I think, a shift in US foreign policy making and national security thinking on climate change, um, there's a whole range of things that I think are important to be able to draw out our climate considerations across, uh, across government and particularly across um, departments like the State Department. And of course, the other obvious one, I think, structurally is making sure that climate change is a prerequisite and a priority in terms of the appointment and nomination of various key folks to any administration. For example, obviously the Secretary of State, but also the Secretary of Defence, the National Security Advisor, and perhaps even um, many other cabinet appointments. Um, the other thing though, which goes to your question on above, um, is the limitations on that approach. And again, you know, one of the things we talk about in the paper is that even in an ideal world where you have a president that wants to achieve all of this, that doesn't necessarily mean that it is all achievable. Congress, for example, could continue to be a significant hamstring on the ambitions of a democratic president on climate change. Many of the ideas that are in Vice President Biden's and others' um, plans are obviously um, subject to the appropriation of funds, which is the purview of the Congress. And while I think increasingly you're seeing a lot of opportunities that can be delivered through executive action, um, the other thing that's really important to bear in mind is that also in the last few years you've seen a lot of appointments to courts in the United States, um, which also potentially presents problems in terms of the challenges judicially to the implementation of some of those policies through, for example, purely executive authority. Um, so there are really important factors as well, which I think will temper a president who comes into office. And of course, you know, the one big assumption we've been making in this uh, to kind of have this conversation is, you know, if there is a democratic president. So the alternative, of course, is we have President Trump get reelected. So if we have a second Trump term, what is that likely to mean for the future of the Paris Agreement, but also generally the global fight against climate change? Yeah, well, if, if President Trump is reelected, clearly all assumptions uh, outlined in our paper are off. Um, I think what we will see in terms of the Paris Agreement is that the U.S. will withdraw and then clearly not rejoin uh, any time in the subsequent four years. So the earliest they could rejoin is 2025. But that 2020-2021 that moment is really the critical moment for the Paris Agreement's effectiveness, as Tom has outlined earlier. So it's really, uh, you know, a thorn in its side uh, at a moment when it really needs to be driving forward uh, and firing on all cylinders. I think there's probably sh some short-term and long-term implications just to sketch up quickly. On the shorter term, we'll likely see the U.S. teaming up with other countries to push a much more aggressive and assertive fossil fuel agenda. Um, you can imagine, uh, you know, with uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia, uh, some like-minded countries uh, much more strongly pushing that agenda. Although on the flip side, you would also likely see a much more, uh, much 
more strengthened and much more unrestrained pushback domestically. So after Trump announced that he was pulling out of the Paris Agreement initially, there was an entire movement of cities and states and businesses in the US uh, saying and really shouting, we are still in the Paris Agreement. And I think you would probably see that movement even grow and strengthen and maybe even have some kind of contribution that those non-federal actors could bring forward as a U.S. offering into the kind of multilateral climate negotiation space in the absence of a formal offering. I think in terms of the longer term implications, um, we would probably really see a, a fundamental rethinking of some of the climate and geopolitical relationships. And I'm thinking especially in Europe, um, but probably likely in Asia as well too. Um, so I think the, the implications of that are, are probably pretty dire, but uh, remain to be seen. But then on the flip side, again, as well, too, there are some signs that at least uh, congressional Republicans are starting to see that we can't completely ignore climate change, again, because it can cost them at the voting booth. So that's why we've seen things uh, coming forward from the Republicans in Congress, such as promoting carbon capture and sequestration through uh, measures like tree planting. We've seen an innovation agenda and a research agenda being put forward. So uh, as much as Trump, uh, President Trump may want to try and uh, completely abdicate any responsibility, I think there will be at least a little bit of movement from his congressional counterparts to want to do something on climate change, if for nothing more than to give them a bit of cover. Uh, in terms of, of voters and going back to the polls. Um, just the last thing to mention on this is I think uh, what we are seeing is there's you know, a fairly uh, accelerating and hopefully irreversible momentum happening on climate change in the real economy in the US, despite what's happening politically. And we will see a lot of uh, efforts uh, to reassure the international community about what's happening through the various subnational contributions. But really, there is no sugarcoating. And I think we've seen this play out uh, very vividly over the last couple of years. There's no sugarcoating the fact that that outcome would really hold significant negative consequences for the global climate regime going forward. All right. So uh, a lot is at stake in November. On that note, uh, gentlemen, let's uh, bring this conversation to a close. Tom, Brendan, thanks so much for taking the time and uh, sharing your insights on what is clearly a really urgent subject. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for having us. I urge all of our listeners to check out their report. You can access it on the Asia Society Policy Institute website. Thank you for listening to Asia Inside Out. Please like and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. For the Asia Society Policy Institute, this has been Anupad Gupta. 